Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. From the blood of Paul to the Philippians, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. C.S. Lewis once remarked that the joys of heaven are, for most of us in our present condition, an acquired taste. We tend to go with what we know, what we see, what we hear, what we perceive through our natural senses. But we see through the mirror dimly, as Paul says, and not everything that is can be perceived. Take marriage as just one example. Today it is unthinkable to many, including a good many Christians, that marriage could have any meaning behind what we see. Many today are of the opinion that that marriage being a human institution, albeit a very old one, has no theological meaning whatsoever. It points to nothing but itself. And being self-referential must refer only to those who are must refer only to what those who are married believe it means. You know, it's sort of something like, "Well, we like each other, and we think we'll be happy for a while." So that's what marriage is. The great irony in the modern mind is that by believing there is no such thing as eternal forms, not only the material will satisfy, not even the material will satisfy. Lewis, again concerning marriage in one of his novels, says that marriage has grown cold. When a man takes a maiden in marriage, they do not lie together, but each lies with a cunningly fashioned image of the other, made to move and to be warm by devilish arts, for real flesh will not please them. The teaching of the church is that marriage is a divine institution, a sacrament in the midst of the created order, but with a deep meaning beyond the natural namely that of the nuptial union between Christ and His church. Today's readings from both the book of the prophet Isaiah and the Gospel of Matthew, as well as the psalm and the epistle, point us to a great feast upon good things, a marriage feast even. A feast which is at one and the same time a material feast as well as an eschatological one. A feast held at the end of all things. A feast toward which all things in creation ultimately tend. Listen again to these words of Isaiah. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined, and He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Isaiah depicts a feast in which the veil, a covering which has been cast over all peoples, will be swallowed up. It is not just a feast of good food and good wine, as good as that is, but it is a feast which is characterized by a destruction of a veil. What is that veil? St. Thomas Aquinas often said that this darkness that we live in is twofold, that of sin and ignorance. The darkness of walking apart from God in our lives through our actions as well as the darkness of the mind in not perceiving things that are but remain hidden from sight. Likewise, David writes of this loving care of the Lord who, like a shepherd, 
cares for him, who prepares a table for him in the presence of his enemies, anointing his head with oil, his cup overflowing. No doubt as a king that had happened over and over and over again. There are probably so many feasts that he grew tired of it. So we can understand that this is a feast which he has experienced, but it is also another kind of feast. Not merely an earthly feast. What is it that David says? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David is presenting us with an eschatological vision for a feast upon the manifold graces of the Lord, a feast which is held in the house of the Lord. And here he is not speaking of an earthly temple. Do you know why? Because it hasn't been built yet. He's speaking of a heavenly one. In fact, you might say that it is only in anticipation of a heavenly banquet that any earthly banquet may be truly and fully enjoyed. I've often noticed this of uh, Christians getting married, you know, and throwing these great feasts. They do so not so focused upon the day itself, but looking forward to what will come later. Many of you know me as a great lover of cooking and food and feeding people. And one of the things that I love about food is that it appears on a plate and then it disappears. It is both ephemeral and ethereal. It passes away, and yet it is too perfect for this world. Have you ever have a, we had a, I was having a conversation with some of the brothers fellows about this last week. Have you ever had a, a meal that just brought you to tears? Anyone? Yeah, the most southern among you. Okay, good. That's great. It points to something else. Even one who does not believe in transcendence will say that a meal was simply heavenly. Or that a glass of wine was out of this world. And then we come to this wedding feast in the Gospel of Matthew. Before giving a greater exploration of this text, I first want to say that every earthly marriage points us to a greater hidden reality. The nuptial meaning which underlies all of human life. A reality that is inscribed in our flesh in the mutual compatibility of man and woman. It is to say that not only at a wedding, but in any marriage, in any married couple, we see this holy mystery of the Gospel. That Christ has gathered to Himself things earthly and things heavenly. That behind this fleshly union is an eternal form which you and I were made to know and to perceive. The trouble, of course, is that it is an acquired taste. Not only for those who are not married, but for those who are married. Sort of the funny thing about marriage is you get married thinking, oh, I'm going to be so full of bliss that I might die. And then what do you find after that? Oh goodness, this is really hard. This person, this stranger next to me, is an acquired taste. And you can't acquire that taste by effort. You can acquire it by grace. This parable, like the one we read last Sunday, is a retelling of Israel's history in parable form. Israel is a nation whose God is also her husband. The covenant love of the Father is poured out upon Israel. It is a covenant which Israel had broken repeatedly, but the Father remains steadfast, looking forward, as the prophet Hosea puts it, when the people will call God my husband and no longer call Him my Baal. It is in the parable before the servants of God, in the parable before the servants of God, the prophets are treated shamefully. They are either ignored or arrested or killed. 
And the response of the king is to destroy the city. And this is actually directly similar to what happens in Isaiah. The city is destroyed, and, but the veil is removed. The walls are broken down, but it is in the midst of the ruins that the banquet table is set. But not for those who had been thought to be worthy. In similar form in this parable, the walls come down, but they are not literal walls. They are the walls between the elite and those who are not the elite. The walls that are set up between nations. And who are invited finally? Those on the highways and byways. Jesus is speaking here of a renewed kingdom which is built upon the ruins. A renewed kingdom in which the people of all nations have a presence. The king, after burning the city and destroying all those murderers, says, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Another way of putting this is that the, those invited were not weighty enough. They were not a people of gravity. Why are they said to be without gravity? Well, it's simple. They are preoccupied such that being invited to a royal wedding is not seen as an honor, but as an inconvenience. Each going to his farm or his business. And so they kill the servants. Now, I, like you, get a number of wedding invitations uh, in any given year, a number of them from uh, cousins that I haven't spoken to in years. But I don't kill the mailman for bringing them to my door. I always wonder, why would they kill somebody bringing a wedding invitation? And it's probably simply this, that they're rebellious. They're rebelling constantly against the king. All they can think of is their own flourishing. All they can think of is their own business. So who is gathered? Well, not only those who live outside the city, and here literally we can think of the pagan, of the Gentile, but also of the good and the bad, as many as the servants can find. They're all gathered to enjoy this wedding feast upon the ruins of a burned city. Here we must say that Jesus is pointing to the church as an apostolic body tasked with going out and finding guests to invite to this mystical and eschatological marriage between, his, between Christ and His church. Not, though, not to those who are already good, but to, those, but to search out those of virtue and those of goodwill, as well as those who are rotten. The weight of a person does not, here does not depend on their moral virtue, but upon their acceptance of an invitation. And it is thus that the wedding hall is filled with guests. There's something that goes on here in the, in, the, in the mind of the king. It is, we can't just invite those who are worthy as we think about it. We must invite those both good and bad who will come. Just as in the previous parable, the, the, the owner of the vineyard had said, all I really want is respect. All he wants here is just, just come. <laughs> just, just attend, please. I want to pause here for a moment to consider what would have been in the minds of those guests. They had woken up that morning thinking that they would go about their business, that they would eat, work, sleep, all the mundane things of this natural life. They wake up to find that their city has been, the city that is further in, closer to town, has been burned down. They expected that this would be a very devastating thing to have the city in the center of their world burned down. And yet, as evening comes, they find themselves in the midst of a royal wedding hall. There, a banquet has been set. Delicious foods such as they could not have imagined. Wine of a quality they couldn't afford. And as we shall see, all but one had been reclothed. 
We can see from the parable that the guests who are invited from the main roads are actually given wedding garments. They are ordinary people, but have been invited to a royal wedding. Now, I don't own a tuxedo. If I, however, was to be given a last-minute invitation to a royal wedding, I'm certain that one could be found. And I would be kind of happy to wear it, I think. But I want to bring you back to this just simple thought that there they are at this royal wedding expecting to see all kinds of people, and yet they find that who's there? Their neighbors. The people that they know, the unimportant people, the people who are not high up in the kingdom. I mean, if I was invited to a royal wedding, I would be elated to meet Sting and Paul McCartney. I would be very disappointed if they weren't there, but I'd still be happy to be there, I think. But then we get back to this idea of this wedding garment. There's only one thing that sets apart this one guy from the rest of the guests. And it's how he's clothed. We know this when we consider this parable theologically. The clothing of sinners is not fit for the kingdom marriage feast. The inadequate fig leaves which with, which with, we, with, with which we clothe ourselves and the skins to which, with God, which with God had clothed those who had come before are representative of a veil of darkness which covers us. And they're wholly inadequate to our eternal end. These guests, these guests, as we can surmise later, are not just guests. They are the bride. They are clothed in a splendor that she can neither imagine nor acquire for herself. One of the surprising things about Holy Scripture is that it is not considered for a moment that we might try to return to our Edenic state. The sentiments put forth by the great Joni Mitchell are never floated in Scripture. And here I'm going to sing them to you. And we've got to get ourselves... Back to the garden. Doesn't work. It never works. The idea of some kind of utopian nudist colony in the sky is never floated as an acceptable option for sinners. What is proclaimed in Holy Scripture is a reclothing of God's people. Consider for a moment that it was in nakedness that our first parents sinned. And they attempted to clothe themselves. And they were later clothed in skins given to them by God. But it is clear that though clothed, this clothing is insufficient. The trouble is that they were still covered by this veil, this veil of darkness, a veil which obscures the things which are unseen, which allows us to perceive only the natural world, but which curses us to live in ignorance of the unseen. Hear what Paul says about this in his second letter to the Corinthians. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Jesus is speaking in parable form about this eschatological reality, this eschatological reality of how the people of God will be clothed. What kind of life they will live. What is mortal being swallowed up by life and not any kind of life, but true, real life. The very life of God. Those who filled the wedding hall were living one kind of life, a mortal life. 
But that mortal life is swallowed up by the divine life of the King. They enter into His world. They eat His food. And it is a world that before that day had been unseen. Have you ever been to London? Ever go on the Kensington Palace tour? You got to do this. It's great, okay? I'm just going to tell you that. You got to do it. It's great. The problem is, you're not seeing the places where the Queen lives, are you? You're seeing all the rooms that are kept immaculate and the art galleries that are kept that way, and no one ever goes in there. But what's happening here? Did you hear how many times the king said, my food, my oxen have been, sla- have been slaughtered. He's inviting them into his life. And they enter into a world that they had never seen before. It requires that they enter into this world without presumption, without even their own clothes. And we see this very starkly in this man who is found without a wedding garment. How did this come to be? And we are not told. What is this garment? Is it faith? Is it holiness of life? Is it Christ Himself? Who is this man? We're told that the wedding hall was filled with guests, both good and bad. Is He one of the good or is He one of the bad? We don't know. Remember, the weight according to the guests is simply this. Not whether they're good or bad, but did they accept the invitation? And this man accepted the invitation. He entered in through the door. And he was later found to be lacking. Well, why? Let's think for a moment about what had happened. He had arrived. And no doubt, as he went through the door, had been offered a beautiful, rich wedding garment. Probably not dissimilar from what I've got on right now. You're going to take, you're gonna put it on, okay, before you go in. That's what you've got to do. And perhaps he said, you know, thanks, but no thanks. I'm quite happy in the clothes that I have on right now. I'm quite happy with the clothes that I put on this very morning. Maybe he took the way of false humility. Very popular among many of us. Oh, that? For me? No, 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 no. Give it to someone else. In any event, we see that this man is operating with a level of presumption. He does not see this invitation to the feast as something to be received. It is only to be taken and on his own terms. This speaks first to the manifold problems of coming to the Gospel on our own terms, in our own clothes, with our own sensibilities. There is a kind of presumption involved here. An arrogance, a disrespect of kingly glory, and maybe it is pride and maybe it is false humility, but it is deadly. Deadly. The other way to think about this man's state is to consider what the other wedding guests were like on that day. This was the last place on earth they expected to end up that day. They were living mundane lives in the midst of this world and they wind up at a royal wedding feast surprised to find that the, only, that the people they thought would be there are not and those whom they thought would not be there, including themselves, are. Again, this is not only to be understood in the literal, but in the allegorical. And also in what we would call the anagogical, as in pointing to further things, future things. What do we imagine is the first word out of their mouths when they are greeted by the king? I'd imagine that some of them went, they they can't speak. They're as speechless as this other man is, but they're clothed properly. 
But I'd imagine if they got any words out at all, it would have been something like this. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you so much. This has been a lovely time. I never thought that I'd go to a royal wedding. But here I am. You're so kind. Is it not this word of humble thanksgiving that comes forth from them? Is it not a kind of Eucharistic praise, such as what David says? You set a table before me in the midst of my enemies. You know what the church fathers call that table, don't you? It's the altar of the Eucharist. This is the table which David experiences in his life. He experiences this, this table of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving to God for the kind of life he has. They surely give thanks to God for his, to the king for his generosity, believing that nothing they had or did gave them any particular weight, but only the invitation of the king to share in his life, which come to find out is not a come to the wedding and then go home kind of invitation, but an invitation to be joined to the king. And not just for a while, but forever. Let me attempt to land the plane here. There is a great debate as to what this garment is. Some, like Calvin, say it is just faith. Others, like his Catholic opponents, say it is good works. Let me say with Paul this, these words so important in Augustine's conversion, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Or this, for as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. This man has entered into the wedding feast, but has not put on the garments of immortality, including not only a lively faith in Christ, but the good fruit that befits that faith. He has come to this feast with his own, on his own terms, with his own ideas, with his own sensibilities. And he is wearing the natural garments which he had put on in the beginning of the day. Garments of skin, garments of sin, and garments of ignorance. And not the beautiful garments of grace. More than that, we might say that this man is anxious instead of thankful. We don't often think of prideful people as anxious, but we should. That's the only attitude a prideful person can have in this world, is that of anxiety. Perhaps he is like the one that Jesus addresses in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And I'm saying, and am I saying to you this day, don't be like this guy? Is it possible that you can apply yourself to do this? Just hear today what Paul writes to the Philippians. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I want you to hear two of these words that stand out so powerfully. Paul is talking about all of these good things. And let me just be clear. They are unseen, but they are things nonetheless. 
We don't think of these good things like the, like the truth and like uh, what is honorable and what is just as things. We think of them as ideas. But even ideas are things. They have a substance. They have a form. They are. Paul understands this. And so what he says is first, think about these things. And he means something like this. Account for the weight of these eternal things. Compute the magnificent power and splendor of these unseen things to compared to what can be seen. He is saying something like this. Consider the weight of an invitation to this eternal, covenantal, mystical marriage of the bridegroom to the bride to be of such surpassing worth as to outstrip everything else. Because if you are the bride, what belongs to you? You know it, those of you who are married, right? You took vows and you said, all my worldly goods, I what? Something like, I endow to you, right? There's an exchange. Everything that I had became my wife's. And it's still that way. What are these things? What is the true? What is the honorable? What is the just? What is the pure? What is the lovely? What is the commendable? What is the excellent thing? What is the thing that is worthy of praise? Is it not that which belongs to Jesus Christ? That's what Paul's saying here. That those things belong to Jesus. And we should consider and think of the weight of those things. And then he says this, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. First, these things, these eternal and glorious things that belong to Christ, the true, the honorable, the just, the pure, the lovely, the commendable, the excellent, are learned. They are things about which, though unseen, we gain knowledge. The truth of the matter is, the guest without a wedding garment might have simply been out of touch with, as so many modern people are today, the idea that some things are superior to others. I know this is just a radical idea and you're just going to break out in hives at any moment. I don't know, maybe not. Uh, but, But some people do. They say there's no such thing as good, better, best. Those are all just kind of, you know, colonials patriarchy speaking when we talk about good, better, best. And that's garbage. It's garbage. There are some things in this world that are better than others. And magnificently so. That there is true and false, and truth is better than what is false. That there is honor and dishonor, and that honor is better than dishonor. There is purity, and purity is better than impurity. That there is the lovely, and the lovely is better than the unlovely. That there is such a thing as excellence and a lack of excellence. So he might be ignorant. Okay, fine. He's ignorant. He doesn't know that some things are better than others. How How do you get to that point? Is it not learned? It has to be learned. But how do you learn it? Well, Paul says something rather interesting here. He says this, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, 
Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. How are they learned? How are they received? How are they heard? How are they seen? They are seen in Paul. Meaning that Paul's brothers in Philippi have learned, received, heard, and seen the garments of the eternal kingdom being worn by their friend and by the one who evangelized them, Paul. They see, the, they see that unseen adornment of holiness in Paul, not as something he did, but as something as, or that he gained, but as something that he received. And so he says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Paul says, practice these things. And this is where many go wrong. They conflate faith with knowledge and they avoid practice. That is very much like saying something like this. Oh, I know how to play the piano. I just don't. Or sure, I know that my wife loves me and I have certain uh, you know, kind and warm feelings towards her, but I don't actually love her. I mean, I'm not going to sacrifice of myself to love her. I'm not going to give of myself to that end. And Lewis, again, gets this so right, as in a marriage, the man lies with the cunningly crafted image of his wife to satisfy his dainty lusts. And he is difficult to please. He weighs everything by his own standards, by his own perceptions. And he misses the good, the true, and the beautiful in their true forms because he's too busy looking at himself. Or all the other people. So this man without the wedding garment, he's missed out on some good things. Would you not agree? And he winds up missing out on all the good things. He misses out on the point of all those good things itself or himself, the living God. And he winds up shabbily dressed. He has no answer to this question, where is your wedding garment? And so Paul says, practice these things to remain steadfastly purposed towards this eternal end and not earthly ones. To exercise ascetical discipline such as fasting to be trained for the things of heaven. Brothers and sisters, let us leave presumption aside. Let us receive the Lord's manifold graces with thanksgiving. And let us by His mercies think upon, receive, hear, see, and practice the things of God in Christ who has joined things earthly to things heavenly, who has broken down the dividing wall of hostility and given us true peace and true life, life in the presence of God. May we be like all the saints, holy His and holy unto Him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.